Today we're going to Romans chapter number 10. Chapter number 10. Part of this was read in our responsive reading here this morning. And I'd like to uh, read the 21 verses to you so you can follow along in your uh, Bibles as I read. Something that I will point out as we begin here, and maybe your translation does this, some translations do, New American Standard certainly does, when it quotes an Old Testament verse, it will put it in all capital letters. I don't know if your translation does that, or if it puts it in italics, or something of that nature, to indicate we're reading an Old Testament verse, there would be such like verse 18, part of that is Old Testament, or it may be in quotation marks. Uh, verse number 19 is like that, verse 20, verse 11, verse number 8, verse number 7, verse number 6. In other words, there's a lot of Old Testament in this passage. I just want you to notice that as we go along and read through this passage, because what God says about faith, he has said from the beginning, and he will never change his mind. So we must understand it as we read. So let me read to you chapter 10 of the book of Romans. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God and not in accordance with knowledge. For not, accord, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes, that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, uh, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by he or from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the worlds. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that nation which is not a nation. Uh, by a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. Heavenly Father, we have much to learn from this passage today. We come before you and ask for your help. 
we must know what this says. It contains the issue of faith, whether or not we are those who believe you, or we are like those who you describe in that last verse, disobedient and obstinate. And I pray, Lord, that you show us who we are, what we believe, as we look into your word. Teach us, Lord, about you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is another part of a fundamental study throughout the book of Romans. We have seen many things, and and I'm inclined to go all the way through it again, but I won't. Chapter number 9 is where I'd like to uh, remind you that last week we talked about Israel being our example. And he is illustrating the facts that he has taught throughout this book. And in chapter number 9, we saw very clearly that God is the initiator of our salvation. If God doesn't reach out to us, we have no hope. God initiates salvation. And we talked about that last week. Today we're going to use Israel as an example again in chapter number 10, and that we are responders to salvation. We are responders to salvation. Those two things go together. God initiates salvation. We respond to what he has initiated. Now, it is true that these kind of things cause us to struggle as we seek to understand what the Bible says. We struggle to comprehend many things. How could God exist in one person and, or as one God and exist in three persons? Have you wrapped your mind around that one? Kind of hard. How can, how can, uh, Jesus Christ be 100% man and 100% God at the same time? Not a 50-50 mix, but 100% God and 100% man at the same time. How could Jesus be God, live on this earth, and not use all his attributes to the fullest extent? That's amazing to me. How could we be saved before the foundation of the world, before this planet was even created, and yet we're saved at the moment we accept Jesus Christ as Savior? I think of this because Scripture tells me that He's called us. He's predestined us. He's justified us. He's even glorified us. We saw that as we studied into chapter number 8. All that before we were even born. Now that truth is taught in Scripture. Yet He knew this all about me and waited until I was 12 years old before I came to know Him as my Savior. Some of you, you were much older than that. How is it that God is sovereign in salvation? That he saves whom he desires. That all that he saves, he loses none. He holds believers accountable for the fact they don't trust him. You ever try to put those two together? 
These are the kind of things we question from time to time, and theologians have wrestled with it for years. But here's the reality. Chapter 9 and chapter 10 are side by side in Scripture. Chapter 9 and chapter 10, for some people, seem irreconcilable. That God has a sovereign choice in salvation, and man is responsible to respond by belief. They're side by side. If we only had chapter 9, say we never had a chapter number 10, all we would know about salvation in that chapter alone would be that God chooses, God elects, God predestines, God calls, God saves, God justifies, God glorifies, and you'd start to think that you're a robot. If we only had chapter 10, And if that's all we knew about salvation, then we would understand that man must proclaim the gospel, man must hear the truth, man must believe the word in order to be saved. And if that's all there was to the message, then it comes away with this notion that salvation is merely man's choice, and God is a responder to our faith. But, both of these chapters are in Scripture. Both of them sit side by side. The Bible is true. Every chapter is true. Matter of fact, I'm absolutely convinced the Bible never contradicts itself. Never does. So I conclude both of these are true. Even if my mind can't put them together. And I kind of like it that way, to tell the truth, folks. Because if we could put it all together and figure it all out, we'd get bored and we'd move on. But because these things are before us, and God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. They're higher than you could even imagine with your mind. These passages come to me and they say, you know, I got a great God. A great God. And what he tells me to do is trust him. Trust him. Underscore that as that concept of faith. Faith is believing in something you cannot see. It's confidence in knowing that you have something that you're actually not holding. It's belief in a God you've never seen, loving a Savior that you have never met on this earth. Trusting that he has gone to prepare a place for you, a place you've never been. Jesus said that our faith ought to resemble that of a child. How much they don't understand and yet accept by faith. That doesn't mean we're to be ignorant. For scripture is clear. It presents these things before us. And I could try my best to reason all the way through Scripture, but I I fall short if I don't go to it by faith. I have to believe what he tells me. Now, I honestly don't have too much trouble accepting God's sovereignty in working on my behalf. I don't have trouble with that, personally. I do have trouble reconciling Great mercy and great grace with the likes of me. 
Those things are puzzling to me. Scripture says we're sinful people. Why God seeks to bestow on us His love. Why God wants to give us His mercy and His grace. You know, even the angels wonder about that. Peter says they're, they're, they marvel at this salvation. They look down and say, Lord, are you sure you want to save that one? <laughs> they're amazed. They're amazed at what grace looks like. So am I. I guess that's what makes it so marvelous, so wonderful, so great, matter of fact, that when Paul concludes this little section of this book, in chapter number 11, he just spurts out this phrase, all the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who, who has become his counselor? Who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the conclusion he reaches after thinking these thoughts. So as we go into chapter number 10 here, our key word today is belief. And there are many wonderful verses here, and, and you know I always pick one out of the chapter and say, that sums up the chapter. And by now you're probably guessing which one I might choose. Verse 4. Surprise. You were thinking one of the others, weren't you? Verse number 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end. The Greek word, telos. He's the end. What is that word? He's the definite goal. He's the outcome. He's the result. He is the sum. He is the conclusion. That's that nature of that word there. When it says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, He is that definite goal of the law. He is the outcome of our belief. He is the result of righteousness. He is the sum of salvation. He's the conclusion of the gospel. We can rightly say this. Christ is the beginning of belief. We can rightly say Christ is the author of our faith. But we can also say Christ is the finisher of our faith. You see... The law was written to show Jesus Christ. Righteousness was declared to proclaim Jesus Christ. Salvation was given to conclude in Jesus Christ. He is the first and he must be the last. Hold your place here and go to Ephesians chapter 1. Great section. I love Ephesians chapter 1. It says there in verse number 9 and 10, these words. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is. What is it? What is it, God, that it, what is he designed? What is his plan? What is his purpose? What is it? The summing up of all things in Christ. 
Things in the heaven, things on the earth. That means you're in there too. All things summed up in Christ. That's God's plan. That's an incredible thing. What about my belief? Yes, that's part of it too. All things summed up in Christ. All things. Hear the words? All things summed up in Christ. Go over to Colossians, just another book or so away. Go past Philippians, Colossians chapter number 1, verse number 15. I'll read just about seven or eight verses here, but watch the center of it all. It says, concerning Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Who's the centerpiece in all this? The Lord Jesus Christ. He created all things, right? In His work of redemption, we are saved because of Him. It's by His blood. This is what He has done. This is what He has done. Our world has done much to diminish the Lord Jesus Christ. It has done much to diminish the Lord Jesus Christ, His importance, His sovereignty, We have seen religion reduced to the works of man. We have seen faith centered on the opinions of man. We've seen the standard of righteousness lowered to a morality of man. Man has attempted to nullify the plan of God, in my opinion, and replace it with a cheap substitute. But Jesus Christ will always be the centerpiece of faith. Always. That's God's plan. That's the way he set it up. Matter of fact, these are the words that Jesus said. The very words he said to the Jews. And it's very important that we know these things as well. So let's look at these. or help us understand the chapter. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 39 and verse 40. Jesus said these words. You can tell it's in red, right? Some of you have red print. Now, these are the words of Christ. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. 
it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Wow. He wasn't wishy-washy on that point, was he? You read the scriptures. They speak about me, he said. They speak about me. Where do you find life? Come to me, he says. Come to me. Go to the book of Luke, chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 19 is a good place. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Some of the disciples were walking back to Emmaus. They had heard a great number of things about Jesus being alive People saying they'd seen him, they hadn't seen him yet. They're not sure what to think. But they're walking back home. And according to Luke's reference here, Jesus starts to walk with them. And he asks them, what are you thinking? What are you talking about? And they said, well, we're talking about Jesus. The, the Nazarene, the one who is a prophet, who, who did great many things. And, and uh, they put him to death on the cross. And we thought all the while he was here to redeem Israel. And we don't understand. And, and then this morning the women are running about telling us that they've seen him. And we don't understand. And, and uh, Jesus said this. I could start in verse 19. He said to them, what they, things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deeds, and word of the sight of God, and of all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be sentenced to death and crucified him. But we were hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But some of us women among, some of the women among us amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. They did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. So Jesus said these words, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture. Why was the law written? To explain Christ. Why were the Psalms written? To explain Christ. Why were the prophets written? You know the answer now. To explain Christ. He is the conclusion of Scripture. He is God's final and only word on the subject of salvation. Jesus Christ. So it's right to conclude, as Paul does here in Romans chapter 11, uh, 10 verse 4. It's right to conclude. Salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ. 
He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Notice those words very carefully. You didn't see Muhammad's name in there. You didn't see Buddha's name in there. It's all about Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. God would not change his mind on that point. It's only through Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, this is how strong it gets. Verse number 9, Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see anyone's name in that passage? Jesus Christ, the Lord. You see that? He's not saying just believe. Pick anything. That's not what he's, he's looking at. He's not saying confess just anything. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. It's all about Him. It has to be with the mouth, folks. It has to be with the mouth. The mouth states the words, Lord, help! Save me! A drowning man's not afraid to yell for help. A scared child uses his mouth to call for help. Scripture says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. It's amazing to me. I love sports. Yesterday, we're full of college football. Days before, you're watching the Cubs win. How can you sit among 37,000 people, see a home run, and keep your mouth shut? Especially if it's on your team. But Scripture says the redeemed of the Lord should say so. And we're among the most quiet people on earth for some reason. When he's done something far, greater, more, infinite, lasting forever, he has saved us. And the redeemed just keep our mouth shut. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord. How many times do we see this in Scripture? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O God. It's acceptable to the Lord for our mouths to confess Him. If we're unwilling to confess Him, why have we sought his salvation in the first place? We speak of him. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. And if we're unwilling to recognize that, I mean, who is he? Who is this one that we're confessing? Does it not say Jesus Christ is Lord? Is Lord? What's that? We're speaking about one who is God. And to deny that he is God, to, to think that he is not God at all, that he doesn't have power over sin, he doesn't have power over death, he doesn't have the ability to save you, then why'd you come to him? That's why we confess him as Lord. He is God, is he not? Isn't that the one you're trusting to save you? You're going to trust somebody less than that? 
To confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe. See, our belief is all about Him. We believe in our heart. It doesn't say believe in your head. It says believe with your heart. Satan could believe with his head. We are called to believe in the place where our deepest feelings are, where our deepest convictions lay. We're to believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's what it says to do. Verse 10 adds to this. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. See, you cannot call upon the name of the Lord without a mouth. And you cannot believe in the Lord without a heart. Now, with all that salvation we're speaking of here, we've got wonderful truths, such as verse number 11. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. I like that phrase. You may have a slightly different word there, confounded or something like that. might be the word there. Disappointed is the word. Do you honestly think that when you pass from this world, you step into glory, you're going to say, rats, that's not at all what I was hoping. I don't think so. Those who believe in him will not be disappointed. I don't know. Sometimes we struggle with things, deep things, hard things. A day might seem pretty rough. You might get a thousand disappointments in the course of a day. This one you will never be disappointed in. You might have to write this down. Because it is perhaps the only thing we could write down and say definitely so. I will never be disappointed that he has saved me. His salvation doesn't come with disappointments. We might need to remember that one. Everything else is going to fail. But Jesus never fails. Verse 12, here's another wonderful truth. It says that he abounds in riches to all who call upon him. Abounds in riches. Now that doesn't mean we've got Cadillacs. I'm not rich in money. And I'm not rich in real estate. And I'm not rich in investments. I don't have those things. But I have all the riches of heaven in Jesus Christ. All of it. You see, the message is is so simple here in Romans chapter 10. Jesus Christ is the end. He's the end. He's the goal. He's the result. He is the conclusion of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That says, He alone is my salvation. The law won't get me there. Righteousness, oh, I even know what that looks like when I produce it myself. Isaiah gave us the best picture of it. Looks like a dirty rag. These things won't save me. Christ will. He's the only one who can fulfill the law. He's the only one that can stand righteously before the Father. And he is the one who saved me. Underscore him in all of this. For we have seen it so often. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.18 He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. Is he being rather singular here? Yes. This is what it says in John 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. You're not going to get life outside of His name. You're not going to get saved outside of His name. It's only through Him. What prompted Paul to write this in Romans chapter 10? Why is this the theme of his chapter here? Well, he said in verse number 1, I've got a desire, brother. I have a heart's desire. My desire, my prayers, for my own people Israel, that they might be saved. Paul said earlier in chapter 9, he was even willing to have himself thrown out forever, if that might save them. And yet, as he looked upon his own people, he said, as we saw last week in chapter 9, they had all the advantages this world could ever give them to give them a place to stand before God. They had the adoption as sons. They had the glory of sonship, the honor from God, the covenants of Abraham and David. They had the giving of the law. They had the temple service so they could worship this God. They had the promises of land and blessings and all the rest. They had their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. They had the Messiah in the flesh. Yet none of these things belonged to them because they pursued it with a law of righteousness and they did not arrive at that law because they did not pursue it by faith. That's what he told them in chapter number 9. All these great advantages mean nothing without faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And it seems so simple Why can't Israel believe it? Why can't Israel believe it? They have so much given to them. That's why Paul quotes the Old Testament so much in this chapter. I'd love to take the time and take you to every single passage that he quotes and show you how it all comes right back to the same point. But here I'll give you the summation of it this morning. You can go and dig later if you want. In Isaiah 28, where he quotes, the passage says that the religious leaders would not listen to God. In Joel chapter 2, where he quotes, we have the fact that Israel would not obey God's word. In Isaiah 53, powerful chapter, first thing Isaiah says, Lord, who will believe our report? God has declared the word to them over and over and over. And they were responsible to respond by faith, to live out what they believe. It was written in black and white, but they would not. They would not. Let me give you a couple of passages that sum this up nicely. First is in Second Kings, chapter number 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. Now, I, I acknowledge the fact that when we go into Old Testament and stuff, some people just kind of 
turn off something inside their head. They say, well, this is Old Testament. It's nothing to do with me. Listen carefully. Would you please? Second Kings chapter 17, verse 6. I'm just going to start there. Now, yeah, verse 6 is a good place. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria... The king of Assyria captured Samaria, carried Israel away into exile to Assyria, settled them at Hala and Habor on the river of Gozan, the cities of the Medes. Simple picture. You've got all this Old Testament time and all the kings and all that reigned on the throne of Israel at that time. The nation had been divided by this time, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. The Assyrians came in, captured the northern kingdom of Israel, carried them off into exile. What happened? What brought that day that they were carried off into exile? Why did God let that happen? This is his answer. Verse 7. Now this came about, he said, because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they feared other gods. And they walked in the custom of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. And in the customs of the kings of Israel whom they have introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly that were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns and watchtowers to fortified cities. They they set for themselves sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. One word, idolatry. It was everywhere. There they burned incense on the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried them out to exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking the Lord. They served idols, concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets, and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the laws which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you, through my servants, the prophets. This, verse 13, was repeated thousands and thousands and thousands of times in the presence of these people. Verse 14 is key. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God. You see it? That's why. They did not believe in the Lord their God. And he goes on to say the results of that. Psalm 78. Let's scan this one just for a moment. Psalm 78. It's a history lesson all the way through the psalm. Pointing out how Israel had so often been unfaithful to the Lord. I'm going to highlight some verses as we go through Psalm 78. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's rather lengthy. For verse number 8 says, Do not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Verse number 10, They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in His laws. Verse number 11, They forgot his deeds and his miracles, which he had shown to them. Verse 17. Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. Verse 18. And in their hearts they put God to the test, 
And in verse 19, they spoke against God. And in verse 22, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in His salvation. You start to get the common thread all the way through? This is the group that Paul's writing about when he says, these are my people. These are my people that, that my heart's desire and prayer to them that God would save them. But I testify, I testify that they don't believe God. They don't believe Him. I could walk you through passage after passage after passage. Moses in Deuteronomy begging them, believe Him. He says these words, he says right in the middle of our Romans passage here, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? Or who would descend to the abyss? But he says in verse 8, the word is near you. This is Moses pleading with the same kind of people. The word is near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. And that's what started this whole conversation. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, Here's this illustration. You can, you can have a copy of God's Word in front of you. You can hear it being taught. You can hear it being preached. You can see many people who love it and who live it out before you. But unless you believe yourself what it says specifically, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Unless you believe in Christ, you cannot be saved. That's it. Faith comes by hearing. So I told you so. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Hearing comes by the Word of God. I don't preach to you from Webster's Dictionary or the Reader's Digest. I just give you God's Word. I didn't write it. I didn't invent it. I just tell it to you. It's yours to believe. It's yours to receive. In either case, it is your response. It is your response. I told you as I started this morning, even in the midst of my prayer, either we are those who believe or we are verse number 21. Verse 21. Disobedient and obstinate people. We're one or the other. Because you can't walk from this room and say, I'm ignorant. This is the call of the gospel message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now it's in your hands. To respond. To respond. Heavenly Father, you know every single person in this room, and we already acknowledge that unless you move, unless you call, unless you pull, no one will come. But Lord, you do those very things because you are God, and your salvation is accomplished because everything you set out to do will be accomplished. You have never failed. And in that I rejoice today. Because your word does not return void. It always accomplishes what you send it out to do.
This morning, your message is straightforward. It comes from your word. It's about Jesus Christ, the Savior, who has died for us, that we who believe in him should have everlasting life. And if there's somebody among us today, Lord, that that especially is a message they need to hear, that they should respond to that even now, draw them to yourself. Convince them in their heart. May they say it with their mouth, Jesus Christ is my Lord. For some of us, Lord, we have said these words, we believe these words, but we have gotten rather wishy-washy ourselves in living them. We've gone on through our day as if these things are quite not as important any longer. Show us the essential nature of this fact. Jesus Christ is my Lord. That I should live that way, that I should be living by that conviction day by day, moment by moment. Jesus Christ is my Lord. He has saved me. He has kept me. He will bring me into his presence. It's because you're Lord, Lord, that we come before you. It's because you are God. You are our Savior. And somehow you let us be your friend. Thank you for such mercy. Thank you for such grace. Thank you for loving us. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you for your salvation. For revealing it to us. For convincing our hearts. For giving us what we need for faith. For giving us the mouths to speak and the hearts to believe. We thank you for this salvation. You are the end of it all. And we come to you with grateful hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.